there is a line that must be crossed. There are moments in our life that are defining moments. And because, because we have a gracious and good God, he often engineers those defining moments for us. There's a well-known defining moment in Texas history. You no doubt remember. March 1836, there were 189 Texians that were barricaded in the Alamo. They were surrounded at that moment by 6,000 of Santa Ana's army, complete with cannons and artillery. Colonel William B. Travis, not a military man, simply a 26-year-old lawyer from Texas, was in command of the Alamo. His co-commander, Jim Bowie, wounded and very sick, lay in a stretcher nearby, but unable to be at his posts. Growing up in West Texas, you didn't escape that story, and even most of us who from other places know about the line drawn in the sand, do we not? When I was growing up as a little boy, re we reenacted it often in our backyard. We would get card tables and sometimes uh, blankets out of the closet, pieces of plywood and cardboard, and we would build ourselves a fort, an Alamo. And unfortunately, the same guy got to be Jim Bowie every time. We, we had a guy in our neighborhood named Tommy who was on a first-name basis with the guys at the emergency room. And so his arm was always in a sling, or his shoulder, shoulder you know, he'd, 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 several times when, you know, when we were growing up, he broke his collarbone, and, or, or his foot was in a cast, and so it seemed like, and partly because he had a big rubber knife, he always got to be Jim Bowie, but sometimes I got to be William B. Travis, not with a real sword, but one of those pieces of wood, you know, with a little cross piece nailed onto it. And you remember the story, don't you? And Travis's speech. We all must die, he said. Our business is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives, but to choose the manner of our death. And after he said it, you remember what he did. Long and slow, he drew a line in the sand and challenged those men who were willing to stay and fight to defend the Alamo to cross that line. Jim Bowie had to be carried across on a stretcher. There was only one man. His name was Moses, Moses Rose. He was a, a Frenchman. Kind of figures, doesn't it? Moses Rose 
a Frenchman, did not cross the line, but chose to live another day. And that night, under cover of darkness, he slipped out of the fortified Alamo to safety. Interestingly enough, there's more to the story. We don't learn about Travis's speech. We don't learn about the line in the, in the sand until that story was written after the death of Moses Rose. Moses Rose would have been the lone survivor of the Alamo. The rest who could have borne witness as eyewitnesses of the events died together in that one place, all 188 of them. There was one man who lived, who could have told the story of William B. Travis and the line in the sand and the speech that he made. And his story was not told until 1873 by a historian in the Texas Almanac. And Moses Rose died in 1850. And so historians continue to dispute the authenticity or the accuracy of that story. Nonetheless, I grew up reenacting that story again and again because it was a defining moment. It was perceived as one of the, the defining moments in all of Texas history. Do you agree? And there are for us sometimes lines that must be crossed and defining moments that must be faced. Let's look at our text this morning. Found in Mark's gospel beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. And proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts with honey and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose, of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down to untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark. It's the first written account that we have of the life of Jesus. 
Now, why did Mark sit down to write? Let me try to answer that one for you. For that matter, why did the other gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, John, decide to record written accounts of the life of Jesus? Well, for about 25 to 30 years after Jesus' life, there were no written accounts, no written documents. The gospel was being spread orally in the preaching of the early church throughout the world at the time. And the primary reason there were, the primary reason, the number one reason there were no written documents that were even required is that it would have been extremely difficult in that day for any distortions of the life of Jesus or what Jesus did to take hold because there were way too many eyewitnesses that were still around to keep the story straight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. Paul is writing about the resurrection of the Lord and its significance. Listen. Listen to all of the appearances that Jesus makes in his resurrected body. Verse 3. For I delivered to you, Paul writes, as of first importance that I also received... That which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also, Paul says, to me. You see it? Paul says he appeared at one time, at one time to over 500 people, most of whom are still alive. Just ask them about the story. He invites the reader to ask. Do you see it? For several decades, you see, um, after the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, it would, have been, it would have been extremely difficult, almost impossible to make up anything false, to add anything to that story. There were just too many eyewitnesses that would have corrected it. In the same way that there are people in this room, as we very shortly will celebrate, or we will mark, excuse me, 50 years since the assassination of John Kennedy. And I have said before, I can remember to a T exactly everything that happened on that day, November the 22nd of 1963. I remember everything about that day. It's indelibly imprinted in my memory. How about some of you? Can you say the same thing? Let me just say to you that if you saw... If you saw, as in that day, a man who not only healed the sick, but raised the dead, you think that would get indelibly imprinted in your memory? You think you'd forget the detail? You think you'd forget what happened? You think anybody could skew that story, you know, to make it look like something else happened that didn't happen? 
But now, you see, a generation later, 25 to 30 years, a whole generation later, and with Roman persecution really heating up, many of the apostles are being martyred, being martyred. You, you know what the New Testament word, the Greek word for a witness is? Martyrion. It was much more dangerous to be a witness for Jesus back then than it is today, isn't it? And many of them, under Roman persecution, were being put to death. Others dying from various other causes, natural causes even. And there now arises a problem. People, as the eyewitnesses become less and less available, people might decide how they wanted to interpret the life of Jesus. How they wanted him to be. Do you see the problem? In effect, they might make up a Jesus of their own and lose the connection with the real Jesus, the historical Jesus. And no doubt seeing this, the church encouraged these eyewitnesses, the gospel writers, to sit down and begin to write out these accounts, turning them into written manuscripts that were carefully copied and circulated in the early church. And a good example of this would be Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. Let me just read what Luke says so you get a sense of what's going on in the early church. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. See, Luke just said, I'm not alone in this. There are many now eyewitnesses that are seeking to write down what they heard, what they saw, what they experienced. Just as those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good for me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, who apparently was an influential Greek person and friend of Luke, Dr. Luke, that you, listen, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John have done for us what they've done for us they've woven together this picture this accurate picture of Jesus not the, a made up Jesus not a Jesus of someone else's invention but as eyewitnesses they have recorded for us who Jesus actually was and is and why is that so important today Because in our contemporary culture, uh, there has been an explosion in the last 15 to 20 years of spirituality. Hasn't there? Have you noticed? Everybody's interested now in things spiritual, all things spiritual. And if you've been watching very closely, everyone's interested in Jesus. But they want Jesus on their own terms. They want to redefine him on the basis of their belief system or their lifestyle choices. And there's real danger when we do that. 
And the irony is, the irony is that if you, if you make Jesus into someone who fits your system, your agenda, your lifestyle, you know, the irony is, is that Jesus can't change or transform you in any way. Why? Because you just made him in your image. There, that, that Jesus can't challenge you. That Jesus can't get in your face. That Jesus can't contradict you in any way. Because you own him. He doesn't own you. And that's not the Jesus of Scripture. If you want a Jesus that can really help you, if you want a Jesus that really can change or transform your life, if you want a Jesus that can bring you to the place where there is a defining moment in your life and you must cross over, then you want to read carefully these eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus. And Mark's gospel is a great place to start. You'll appreciate it because it's the shortest. Because you're all worried about how long this next sermon series will take. After Colossians with four chapters, Dave is going to 16 chapters. Oh my gosh, we could be here for a year. Welcome. Mark's gospel is not just the shortest. But I like what Tim Keller says. In Mark's gospel, you get the naked, unadulterated, undistilled, straight-up, real Jesus. That's what I call Jesus, the raw footage. The other writers, Matthew, Luke, John. Well, Matthew and... Luke had Mark's gospel to look at when they wrote theirs. And so their gospels are expanded versions and, and, and with, with longer descriptions of Jesus and more of his teaching material and more of his parables recorded. Mark is, is shorter. The others talk about Jesus in a, in a little different kind of way. They introduce Jesus differently. In, in Matthew, Matthew starts with the, the Jewish genealogy. He has to establish from the very beginning that Jesus was part of the lineage of David and all the way back to, to Abraham. And so he, he establishes Jesus' pedigree from the, day, the time of his birth. Luke starts with an account of Mary's family and, and, uh, and how John the Baptist was born into the family and Mary's miraculous pregnancy six months after this elderly aunt of hers, Aunt Elizabeth, gets pregnant with John. And so, so there's a lengthy explanation about the relationship of John the Baptist and more about him uh, and, and, and in the story, plus a, a lengthy or careful account of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. John, he, he's a big picture guy. The view from 30,000 feet in his prologue, he starts with the creation of the whole world. Where's Mark start? Just starts right in on Jesus. Jesus is 30, just beginning his rabbinical ministry. And the story's fast breaking. It's like fast-breaking 
news. The key word in Mark's gospel is the word uthus. It's, uh, it's the word immediately. It's used 42 times in Mark's gospel. Everything happens just like that immediately. They go from one thing to the next in Mark's gospel. The other thing that set, makes Mark unique is, is 151 times. That is about 10 times in each chapter he uses what is called historic present tense. Mark is writing as if this, what's, un, what's happening is unfolding right before his eyes. It's, it's, it's dialogue like this. Jesus Jesus sees the man. Jesus is walking toward the man. Jesus stretches out, his, is stretching out his hand. It's historic present tense. To make everything sort of come alive like it's happening right before your eyes. And so we're going to camp here for a bit. With a view to get to know the real Jesus. To see Jesus. The raw footage. Okay, so that said, verse 1. The beginning, go back to verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, any English teachers in the room? Any English teachers? Okay, all right. Okay, so uh, what is that? It's a sentence fragment. It's not even a sentence. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a sentence fragment. Now, believe me, Mark is going to, in the rest of the gospel, complete that sentence. He intends to carefully complete that sentence. But technically, that's a sentence fragment. Which leads many serious theologians and commentators to, su to suggest that this was probably the title that Mark gave to his gospel. On the first page, the title. What I want you to do is I want you to see verse 1 is what? It's a line in the sand. Our tendency would be to leap over it to jump into the story. That's not what Mark does. Mark makes incredible truth claims in those very few words. And we need to pay attention. Some of us, growing up in the church, have heard those titles for Jesus so many times that we may not really hear them in a fresh way. But when Mark wrote those, that sentence, that sentence fragment, if you will, right there in the context of the first century, to people living under Roman domination and ruled by a, a succession of Caesars, that opening statement would literally heard fresh heard new would have rocked them on their heels. But I want you to see that this is a clear line in the sand and you are on one side or the other of that line today. And you know where you are. We discover right off the bat what Mark's purpose is for writing. Mark is, doesn't emphasize chronology 
He's not interested in some careful timeline like Luke is. There are very few references to other historical events that are taking place at the same time that Jesus is living in the first century world. He's not writing history per se. Even though Jesus is clearly a historical figure, he's not writing a biography. I mean, some of us, how many of you love biographies? I love biographies. Where do biographies usually start? Birthdays. The birth. And, and then tells you something about the early childhood and those, uh, those experiences that might have been formational experiences, what we, you know, growing up and, and about education and, and all those things. And, and there's nothing about in Mark about, wait a minute, this is not a biography. What is it? He says the beginning of the gospel. The gospel. That's what he's trying to accomplish. That's the key word. Now the word you may be familiar with. The word in the original language is euangelion. euangelion. It's a formation or combination of two words. You, which means good or joyful, and angel, the word message or messenger, you know, so in, in, it, it means good news, if you will. Now, it was used in that day in a military context. Let me just kind of set this up for you, okay? Okay, when, when a city was threatened by invasion, when a city was threatened by invasion, an army is marching toward the city. Before that city came under siege, the army from, the, you know, from that city would... would form and would be sent out to engage the enemy in battle to protect their homes and their their families from certain harm from a city that that could be pillaged and and surviving families carried into captivity and so so the troops the the men of that city the the able-bodied men were were assembled together and they and they opened the gates and they went out to fight to engage that foreign army, the enemy, in battle. And if they were successful, if they won the day, if their enemy was defeated, then immediately after the battle, a messenger was dispatched, a runner, someone swift of foot, to deliver what? The good News, the joyful, victorious news that would cause a celebration to break out through all of the city. Why? Because their lives were saved. Their future, at least for the, their immediate future, was secure. And that message delivered by a swift runner was called an euangelion. The good news, the great news, the gospel. This is exactly what Mark is saying. This is the first profound thing that he says, which, which indicates to us what his purpose really is. From the first sentence, Mark is shouting 
a proclamation of great victory. That the battle has been won for us. By an army? No. By one man. Jesus. He doesn't care about careful chronology, historical events. It's not a biography. This is, according to Paul, a life-changing proclamation of good news. So, who is this one-man army, if you will? Who takes on all of our enemies, all of which will be exposed in later chapters in Mark's gospel, one by one? Who is it that takes on all of our enemies? Who is this man who has won the victory, who has given us back our lives, who has given us our freedom? Mark says, Jesus Christ. Now, some of us grew up in church, right? I grew up in church, and for years, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. How about you? Christ was not his last name. Had he been identified and as was commonly done in that day, he would have been called Jesus bar Joseph. Bar meaning son. Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus son of Joseph. Or he might have been called Jesus of Nazareth. But Mark says he is Jesus Christ. The word Christos. The Hebrew translation is what? Messiah. This is an unbelievably bold claim, folks. Coming right out of the blocks. Mark makes a statement that would have, in the first century, to an audience of Jew or Gentile, Hearing that proclamation for the first time, it would have rocked their world. It would have set them back on their heels. It would have astounded, disrupted, caused dismay. He is, Mark says, Messiah. He is the one who has been written about for centuries by the prophets. He is the one that we have been singing about, that we have been looking for for centuries. This guy from this little backwater town of Nazareth is Israel's king. He is the king. It's an incredible claim. And then he adds to it. He says, and he is the son of of God. What does that mean? As we're going to see in Mark's gospel, the religious leaders knew exactly what that meant. So whenever Jesus was talked about as the Son of God, what did they do? They picked up stones. They wanted to kill him because they saw it clearly as a claim that Jesus was God himself. Do you see what Mark just did for us? 
I mean, the first few words out of his mouth, he draws the line in the sand. What do you believe about this man? Is he the Christ? Is he God himself in the flesh? This is the dividing line. I want to close just giving you one more thought. Okay, so Dave, how do we come to cross that line? I said earlier in the message that God engineers those defining moments in our life. We cannot get there by ourselves. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. Let me just set this up for you. Jesus has just taken his disciples on a little road trip out of Galilee He's taken them to Caesarea Philippi, we're told. This is the capital city, the Roman capital of the province, the northern province. Caesarea, named for the Caesars. And what do you find there in Jesus' day? That the city would have been decorated everywhere you looked you would have seen statues to the Greco-Roman gods of the day. All these gods everywhere around you. And Jesus takes them on a tour of the city. And once they have seen the city, he stops and listen to what he says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, listen, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, listen, who do you say that I am? And Peter shot up his hand. Nah, Peter didn't ever shoot his hand up. Peter just spoke for everybody. <laughs> Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The very same things Mark says in the opening audacious and bold claim about who Jesus is. You are, Peter said, Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Now read on. Verse 17, you really need to pay attention to this. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The word revealed 
the word apocalypsis. Lift literally translates the idea of lifting the curtain, taking the lid off of something so that we can see inside is the idea. And what Jesus says to Peter is, Peter, you do not have within yourself the ability to lift the veil that covers your eyes. You do not have the ability in yourself to take the lid off. But Peter, the Heavenly Father has blessed you and shown you who This might be a defining moment for someone in this room today. If it is, you didn't get here on your own. You didn't, you were brought to this line by the Holy Spirit because of the love of the Father. Some of us, that defining moment may be farther down the stretch for us, but I promise you that if you will join with us in looking at the man, Jesus, who Mark says is Messiah and the Son of God, if you will study with us, I trust that the Spirit of God will one day bring you to that defining moment where you can decide for yourself. But you won't get there without him. Let's pray.